Those men who are in Christ Jesus, Christ is our pattern, not Peter Pan. Christ is our pattern to strive to grow. Part of growing up is something that Paul is addressing here, is having, mastering self-control in your life. Men. What we need is the Christ-empowered men. We need the biblical men. We do not need the wild at heart men. We need the domesticated men, the men who was domesticated by Jesus Christ, the men who has been domesticated, came under the Lordship of the Word of God. That's the type of men that we need. Are we steady, man? Let's open our Bibles to Titus, Titus chapter 2. And how I love the last hymn, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. It's the whole narrative of our Christian life, right? Following the Lord Jesus. Before that, we sang, all I have is Christ. And what it means to, to be in union with Christ, leading to the next hymn that is a life where we take up our cross and follow him daily. So, Titus chapter 2. Let us read verses 1 through 10. So I want to invite you to stand if you can. Here's the word of the Lord. It says, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sounding, sounding faith and in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model an example, a pattern of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and a sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. You may be seated. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And I just want to ask, especially those who have hearing aid, can you hear me well? Yes, because I know that I think last Sunday or some Sundays before you're having a hard time listening. So we good. Wonderful. Some years ago, I remember an article from the Wall Street Journal. And it was published by the author was K. Heimowitz. And she was, she's actually the author of a book entitled Manning Up. But she had an, an article in the Wall Street Journal. And the, the title of the article was, Where Have the Good Men Gone? Where are the good men? And she argues in her book and in this article that too many men in their 20s they're living a new kind of extended adolescence. And she writes, 
Not so long ago, the average American man in his 20s had achieved most of the milestones of adulthood, a high school diploma, financial independence, marriage, and children. Today, most men in their 20s hang out in a no novel sort of limbo, hybrid state of semi-hormonal adolescence and responsible self-reliance. And she goes on to say, but it's time to state what has become obvious to legions of frustrated young women. It doesn't bring out the best in men. And she's speaking from a societal, secular view, and she sees the need for men to man up. Of course, we as Christians would say the it's not just so women will not be frustrated, but the glory of God will be manifested. The crisis among men is real. Rachel and I were wa walking Portland Friday, and the crisis is real <laughs> on manhood. You don't even know what man is anymore. You look around, and not only that, that there has been an increase, the creation of what is known as the Peter Pan syndrome. Right? Remember Peter Pan, the mischievous character, the young boy who never grows up. He never grows up, and he's always leading a bunch of lost boys in Neverland. And that's what we have. We have many men who they have, they have the bodies of men, but the mentality of little boys never wanting to grow up, leading other lost boys in Neverland. So that's outside the church. How about inside the church? Have we, especially in the American church, have we been affected and infected with this unbiblical view of manhood? Jeff Matters, he writes the following. He says, as a pastor and former college minister, I see the leprous effects of the Peter Pan syndrome in, in young men. And he's referring to the church here. They're men biologically, but boys theologically and practically. They graduate from high school, cut around for a few years, and wish they had a girlfriend, wish they had a job, wish they had a wife, wish they didn't eat dinner with mommy every night, but they do nothing about it. And I, it it's beautiful what he says here. He says, you can blow out birthday candles all you want. Wish, wish, wish upon a star, but it's time to act. And then he quotes Proverbs 26, 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. He says, stop wishing. Start working. He's talking to Christians here. Never land is never somewhere you want to live. And then he says, the post-Edenic, after the fall, after Eden, the post-Edenic lure of perpetual boyishness, fun, frivolity, and zero responsibility is the ultimate space for lost boys. Lost meaning unsaved. Not for men who have been found and are relocated in Christ. For those men who are in Christ Jesus, Christ is our pattern, not Peter Pan. Christ is our pattern to strive to grow. If you are in Christ, you must grow up. And part of growing up is something that Paul is addressing here, is having, mastering self-control in your life. Part of a growing up state in the Christian life is having self-control. Think about all the responsibilities related to adulthood. 
the only way to fulfill these responsibilities is by having self-control because there will be many times when your flesh doesn't want to do something but you need to do because you have self-control and you're not letting your flesh master you. There are times that your flesh wants to do something and you are not going to do it because of self-control. The masculine, the manly responsibilities of going to work. Think about the man's responsibility that God has given to men. And of course, that uh, applies to women also. The masculine responsibilities of working hard. Going to work at the right time. You're not always late. Going to work when you don't feel like going to work. Having to work extra job, jobs to provide for your family when you want to rest. Having a trustworthy word that people can trust your yes and your no. Not spending money with leisure when everybody else is. Caring for your family when you don't feel like. Serving your church when you're tired. Studying the scriptures when you feel like watching YouTube videos. Leading your family in devotionals and prayers when you want to do nothing. You just want to relax. Praying with your wife when you just want to sleep. Working hard to provide for your church and your family. All these masculine responsibilities are the fruit of self-control in the life of a man. Where the Spirit of Christ and the Word of God has so infected and affected this man's mind and heart that he's no longer controlled by his bodily desires, but the desires of his Lord and Master. I would say that a great need in our church and in our society is not just any type of man. There are many types of men around here. Remember when you're in verse 2, the metrosexual man. We have all sorts of men. What we need is the Christ-empowered man. We need the biblical man. We do not need the wild at heart man. We need the domesticated man. The man who was domesticated by Jesus Christ. The man who has been domesticated came under the lordship of the word of God. That's the type of man that we need. We do not need wild men. That was the book that was so popular among men in Christian circles. Wild at heart. We do not need wild men. We need men with self-control. The church needs men, young and old, who are marked by self-control. Not only the church, the family, the society. All need men with self-control. And as Paul is telling us here in Titus 2, a healthy local church that will glorify the Lord, that will be a witness in this dark world, is a church adorned, a beautiful church with men who are marked by self-control. So that's where we are. Here's the outline. So today we come to part five. That is verse six. Dealing with the young men in the church. So let's move quickly here. Let's try to move quickly through this very beautiful section of Titus, chapter two, verse six. And you see, it says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And I know that my precious sisters in Christ here, they're looking at this verse and they're saying, there is a textual problem here. There is clearly a textual problem. Where is the rest of the Greek manuscript? <laughs> What's happening here? 
It's not fair. Look at how many words Paul has for the women and the young women and now for the young men. In my uh, counting here, Paul has six virtues for the older men, five for the older women, and seven virtues for the younger women to pursue. And now he has only one for the younger men. In my count was 22 Greek words in verses 4 through 5, and only five Greek words in verse 6. What's happening here? The feminists were right. Paul is a macho man. He's a chauvinist. Now, we need to remember certain things. First of all, remember that Titus 2 is not the only place in the Bible that talks about manhood. So you need the whole Bible to teach us the whole topic, what a whole man is. Amen? So remember that, that Titus is part of the whole book. So you have a whole Bible. Titus 2.6 is showing something very significant, very important that requires a man. Second, we must remember that there was a context. There is a historical context where Paul is writing this letter to Titus. Titus is in the island of Crete. And you remember that the island of Crete had been contaminated with the feminist movement. And the women in particular had been tremendously, tremendously affected by the feminist movement. So God's care, tender care towards the women, he sees that he needs to prioritize that group that has been more deeply affected by the false teachings. Third, we know also that we saw in verse 2 that all the, the virtues required for the older man must be cultivated in the life of the younger man. You don't wait until you get old to try to cultivate. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-control, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. Young men cannot be waiting. You start today developing these virtues. And fourth, yes, it's one simple Greek verb here to be self-control. But honestly, it has massive, massive implications for the life of a man. A man who is self-controlled, he is going to bless so many other people. So, with that in mind, let's keep moving here. Hopefully, I, 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 help you, I helped you to see the. it's not a textual problem. It's, not a, it's just there are a lot of things going on here. So he says, likewise, and likewise reminds us that the young men, the younger men here, they're part of the church. It's all, likewise, he's putting them together with the younger women, with the older women, with the older men. Likewise, just like the younger women, younger men they need, likewise, they need the older men to come alongside and help them. That's important. The likewise is very important. And you see, this likewise shows us that the body must be together. It's not segregated between the young people here and the old people there. They're all together in worship, part of the church. And Paul says, likewise, the younger men, the younger men, who are the younger men? Of course, they knew who the younger men were in church. The, it is hard because you have... A Hebrew understanding of what a young man would go, and then you have the Greek understanding. If you have a Hebrew understanding, you'd put a young man starting with 12 years old. Greek would be a little bit later. How about us today? We created the, the, the expression adolescence. You don't find that in the Bible. It's from children to young men or young women. So... 
You can just think, okay, from teens to 40s to 30s, we, d we don't know. The, the church knows who the young men are and who must be treated as a young man and those who are supposed to be behaving like a young man. So he says, young men likewise, and he says, urge, urge this group of people. That's the ESV. The NIV has encouraged. If you have the ESV or the, the legacy, urge. You have the King James, exhort. It's an important word. It's a very fascinating word, parakaleo, from where you have the, the title of the Holy Spirit, parakletos. The word parakaleo, depending on the context, it's just like English. You have a word that can have different meanings. But depending on the context, it can mean comfort and encourage. But it can also mean to exhort, to urge, to strongly appeal. Robert Yarbrough says that parakaleo can denote a tender nurture or, depending on the context, a stern entreaty. Depends on the situation. The context is clear here that Paul is not telling Titus to comfort the younger man with self-control. There is a sense of urgency, a desperate need. To six, Paul is telling Titus and the other older men to urge strongly, to appeal, to exhort the younger men. And so sometimes we have a hard time with exhortation. But exhortation is all over the scriptures. It's part of the Holy Spirit as the parakaleo, the parakletos, to oftentimes to urge and exhort us, and other times to comfort and console us. All Christians are supposed to be exhorted. You go through all the scriptures, and all Christians are supposed to be exhorted, beseeched, urged. But I think younger men in particular, they have a, a great need to be exhorted. And I can see some moms here just nodding their heads. Amen. And as a man, as a man and as a younger man, I'm in my 40s. Remember, <laughs> the older man comes to the 50s and after. I, I can say that we need, <laughs> we need other men to come into our lives without fear of hurting our feelings and exhort us and urge us and entreat with us. We need other men telling us the hard words that we need to hear. The strong exhortations that we need to hear. Sad when you have so many people scared of telling others people because other men because oh I might hurt his feeling. Who cares? You need to stop. This, my, my feelings are hurt. And you know what? Pride, honestly, pride is the greatest obstacle to exhortation. Pride is like a, a, a shield against welcoming exhortation. Prideful people, especially it's a mark of young men, right? And some old people too, especially young men. They, they all think they know everything, they can do everything. They have a terrible reaction to exhortation. Whenever they are exhorted, they get hurt. And we we're living right now in a society surrounded by feeble and weak men who cannot handle exhortation. That's the truth. 
Men who only want to be cuddled and not exhorted. How many men leave church, churches complaining about the pastors because they got hurt, their feelings got hurt? There is no sin. They cannot pinpoint a sin. It's just my feelings got hurt. So many fathers are unwilling to exhort and ad admonish their sons. Consequently, we have a society of weak men who cannot handle the biblical pattern of being exhorted. They cry like infants. They have tantrums when they're exhorted. And I know that some men here are just saying amen. Some men and women are listening now and saying amen. But what's going to happen when you are exhorted? Some people love saying amen when they think about other people. But when they are exhorted, they are the first ones to cry and get hurt. How about the wives? Are you going to cuddle your husband when he's exhorted? Or in love, you're going to say, take like a man. He's a man who loves you. It's the Lord exhorting you. How about moms? When your sons are exhorted, we will get hurt. Or you say, praise the Lord that there is a man who loves you enough to exhort you and urge with you to change your life. I remember pastoring a different church, and we had this young man in the music team. And in a conversation, he informed me that he was for many, many months and years enslaved to pornography. And I told him that he could not be standing in front of the church leading music while he was under the slavery of pornography. No, that's not right. You are setting a pattern in front of all the church of praising the Lord with clean hands. Your heart's enslaved to all sorts of evil things. And of course, I offer to help him, walk with him. But the next day, I get a phone call from his mom. Complaining. That was too hard. Instead of being thankful that a man loves her son enough to come alongside and say, you need to stop, brother. You need to stop or you're heading to hell. And this sin will affect all other relationships of your life. Now she got, she got hurt. Uh, there's a, a very good example here in this church of a young man who who took exhortation like a godly man. Uh, a young man in this church, when I met him, his name starts with J and ends with Aaron. I'm not going to say who he is. <laughs> but I remember, I remember when I first met him, he was visiting us, the church, and, and some people came to me and said, hey, I heard that so, I heard that he is, he's going to be a pastor. Uh, and that's so exciting, and you are walking with him, and I said, hey, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I had a talk with this young man, and, and I exhorted him, I said, hey, that's, I appreciate that you aspire the office of being a pastor, but first of all, you need to commit yourself to a body, to a church. You need to be walking with other men, with other women who will see in you the gift of pastoring. You cannot be just wandering around telling people that, hey, I'm going to be a pastor when the church that Christ has given as a way of confirming that is not part of your life. 
That's the problem we have. I have a bunch of ministers outside there that they have no churches. And I didn't know this man very well. I was just right in the beginning. They were visiting the church. They were not members. And he took the exhortation like a godly man. It was hard, but he took to heart. And he showed himself to be a man with self-control. And a man who, Lord willing, will be in office sometime soon. Because he has self-control and he doesn't get hurt with exhortation. Because one thing that happens in pastoral ministry, you are going to be exhorted all the time by your members. <laughs> People are always telling you what needs to be done better, what can improve in the church. So it's a beautiful thing when you have young men who are willing to take the exhortation like a godly man. And then Paul says... Likewise, urge the younger man to be self-controlled. One of the marks of young men, especially in our culture, in our society, is to be lacking self-control. Young men are known for being reckless, foolish. They cannot be like that in the church of the Lord Jesus. Amen? The men are supposed to be different. And that's a key word in Titus. Titus, uh, Paul has been using this word for self-control throughout this letter. And we know because if you go to Titus chapter 1 verse 12, he describes how the Cretans are. And he says, one of the, one of the Cretans, chapter 1 verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, no control with their mouths, evil beasts, a beast, evil beast without any self-control. Lazy gluttons, no self-control. Do, do you see that the culture surrounding the church in Crete is a culture of people lacking self-control. And they're coming to church and they're being saved. And they need to hear that in Christ now, they need to be different. They have self-control in Christ Jesus. So it's an important word here. The Cretan lifestyle was a, a lifestyle of lacking self-control. And how about the American culture? Are we marked by self-control? Look all around us and you see a society driven by self-indulgence. Lack of self-control. And you see how the crisis is real by the different types of disorders. Disorder means lack of order, lack of control. And there is a vast list of with all, sor all sorts of disorders. Here's just some examples. Communication disorder, attention deficit Hyperactivity disorder, anxiety disorder, post-traumatic distress disorder, eating disorders, binge eating disorder, impulse control and conduct disorders, depressive disorders, gambling disorder, tobacco and alcohol disorder, substance-related disorders, obsessive-compulsive and related disorders. That's just some. There are, there are many in this place where I was at. Disorder implies a lack of order, control. And what do we do as a society? We give them drugs. We treat sin as if sin was an illness that can be treated with drugs. But that's not how the Bible treats that. There must be a going back to the gospel and the lordship of Christ 
and being able to control your impulses in Christ Jesus. Paul used this word, you can see in Titus chapter 1, verse 8. That's part of the qualification for elders. They must be self-controlled. In chapter 2, verse 2, he used that for the older man. The older man also must be self-controlled. He used that in verse 5 for the younger women, implying that the older women also, so they can teach the younger women how to be self-controlled. Then in verse 6, and then in verse 12, we also see this wording being used once again. It's a very important word, self-control. According to Galatians 5.23, one of the fruits of the Spirit is what? Self-control. It's amazing, this text in 2 Timothy 1.7. Paul says that God gave us a spirit, not a fear, referring to the Holy Spirit, giving us not a fear, but of power and love and what? Self-control. If you have been conquered by the gospel, the Holy Spirit is within you, you have the power for self-control. It's amazing how Paul summarizes the gospel. In Acts 24, Paul is meeting with the Roman governor of Judea, Felix, and then his wife, Drusilla. And look at how Luke summarized the account. He says, after some days, Felix, or Felix, however you want to call, came to his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish. And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned, look at Paul's reasoning, he's preaching the gospel. And as he reasoned about righteousness, what else? Self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you again. It's amazing how the summary that we have is not Paul saying, Jesus loves you and has a beautiful plan for your life. No, he summarized the gospel as dealing with righteousness, self-control, because it's a fruit of being close with Christ's righteousness and the future judgment. Sad how we have changed the gospel. We no longer talk about these beautiful aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is self-control? What is self-control? The Greek word used here, the verb is sophroneo, and we talk about how it, it's related to Sophia, wisdom. And what is wisdom? The idea of Sophia was the mastering of his skills. Sophia was the mastering of some skills. But I believe that also related there, but there's another aspect of this word sophroneo where you have the prefix, that the word that comes before the soul, comes from souls, safe, saved, something that's controlled, it's guarded. And then you have the, the root word that's fronel. And he, some of you were with me when I was preaching through Philippians. And that's an important word through the letter to the Philippians, fronel. Fronel is a pattern. It's a style of thinking, acting, and feeling. Affects all. The mind, the emotions, the actions. So you can say the self-control is a safe, a saved control of the mind leading to actions and feelings. 
according to the scriptures, self-control is the mastery of the body. By the self-mastery self of the mind, that was controlled by the Spirit of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I like what Marshall and Toner write. They have a, a longer section on just dealing with the word self-control. And they say, thus, self-control, sophron, self-control, in its relation to the Christ event, the coming of Christ, depicts a balanced demeanor, a balanced demeanor, characterized by self-control, prudence, and good judgment. That's why sometimes it's translated as sober-minded. It is a quality which faith in Christ produces and one of the marks of the true Christian life. What is the opposite of self-control? Yes, being wild, not having control of anything. And we can say that lack of self-control leads to all sorts of sins, right? Think about why, why, did you, why did you yell at so-and-so? You're not able to control your feelings. You're not able to control your emotions, your words. Why do you get angry and violent? Lack of self-control. Why do you indulge yourself in so many areas? Lack of self-control. Why do you keep clicking on those websites that you ought not to visit? Lack of self-control. It's not the word and the spirit controlling you. All these sins are the fruit of the, of the lack of letting the spirit of Christ govern you and rule over you. Ed Welch, he writes, in fact, sin, sin itself can be summarized as, and then he has capital letters, I want, I want more. He says, sin is a reckless consumer. There is no self-control with sin. In Exodus 32, remember Exodus 32, the account of the golden calf, idolatry. The idolatrous people are called people without self-control. And they're running wild without control. That's why, because they're not being governed by the Lord, by the word of the Lord. How we need self-control, brothers and sisters. And that's for all of us especially for the men. In an article by the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, this article says, self-control means your yes means yes and your no means no. It means that people can count on you to do a job and to do it right. It means a wife and kids can count on you to be there for them. It means that they can trust that you are not spinning your wheels chasing your own vanity. <coughs> Self-control means that you are so possessed by the Holy Spirit that you do not run after the passions of youth. Rather, you run after Christ, His Word, and His glory. That's what it means to be self-controlled. Amen? Amen? To be controlled by the Spirit of God in such a way that you're not chasing after your own passions, but after the Lord Jesus, His kingdom. In Proverbs, Proverbs 16, 32, we have this very interesting statement. He says that he who rules his spirit, the one who has self-control, 
He who rules his spirit is better than he who takes a city. A man who has self-control is stronger in the eyes of the Lord and mightier than the mightiest army. Richard Clifford, he says, conquest of the self is better than conquest of others. Self-possession is the sign of wisdom. The one who knows how to control himself. In Proverbs 25, Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. And that's a very sad picture. We are not used to because the cities here have no walls. <laughs> and even the border is losing its wall. <laughs> right? But in ancient times, the cities had walls, and the walls were vital to protect the city. A city without walls was a city under judgment, a city under siege. And that's the picture here. It's a city that cannot provide comfort, security, shalom to its inhabitants. And a man without self-control is just like that, a man who cannot provide the security, the shalom, the, the the safety that's needed because he's self lacking self-control. That's why it's vital for elders, pastors, deacons to be marked by self-control. You think about Samson. Think about the Old Testament. You have Samson, Samson, Solomon, and David. The strongest, the wisest, and the godless one. All all left like a city without walls because lack of self-control. Deeply, deeply destroy their lives and the lives of others because they do not have self-control. So sadly, so many young men have no self-control. No, no self-control as to getting up, exercising, working hard, studying, studying the scriptures, serving the church, turning off all the foolish things they're always on. And in verse, continuing here, I, I, it, it's an interesting construction in the Greek sentence because the concerning all things is placed in such a manner that could refer to verse 6 or could refer to verse 7. Most scholars, and I think I, I also agree, that Paul has placed right there because it works both ways. It works for the young man and then it works for the minister. The minister is supposed to be an example concerning all things, and the younger men are to be self-controlled in all areas of their lives. So I think it's very wise where Paul places this word concerning all things. And what he's saying is that the younger men in the church, they must have self-control in all areas of their lives. We are always giving excuse for younger men, right? Isn't that true? We always give an excuse, and the excuse is they are young. <laughs> You know how young men are. They're just foolish like that. You know how young men are. They're just impulsive. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. In all areas, all areas of life, there, there cannot be any single area in your life that's not under the control of God's word and his spirit. So let me ask you, is there any area of your life that is marked by lacking self-control? What are the areas of your life that you need to build the wall of self-control? 
Or what are the excuses that you have been giving for lack of self-control? How many people blame their past, their parents, because of lack of self-control? Oh, that's just who I am. Oh, my grandpa was like that. My dad was like that. Of course, I need to be like that. No, if you're in Christ, you're in Christ, and you're not in Adam. You're not in your father. You're in Christ. You're a new creation. And that's the contrast that we have. All around us, they want to give excuse for young men to be lacking self-control. Not in the church, not in the kingdom of the Lord. Think about when a young couple, they fall into sin, sexual sin, fornication, they're not married. The girl gets pre pregnant. Who, who gets all the shame? The girl gets all the shame. Shame on us or think like that. The men should get the shame. Most of the shame, for sure. The men should be the one being humiliated. Because you have a call to resemble the headship of Jesus, to protect and guard. And we have perverted that as if it's okay. You know how guys are. It's messed up. So master, master your desires. Master your desires in, in the area of bodily appetites, leisure, laziness, lust, greed, whatever. Y you need to master. If you're in Christ, you have the power to do that. Look at Paul says. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 25 through 27. Every athlete exercise what? Self-control in all things. That's why it's important. The self-control in all areas, self-control in all things matches here. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body. And he's, he used a beautiful word here. Literally means to make a slave. And he makes his body his only slave, implying what? The body is not the master over him. He is the master over his body. He is the Lord over his body. Because Christ is Lord over him. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. So what are some areas in your life that you need to grow, and you need to grow in the area of self-control, in the virtue of self-control. Your emotions, your anger, your speech, always complaining, always explosive, always arguing, your thoughts. It's interesting that sometimes people allow things into their minds, they have no control of their minds, things that they would never do with their bodies. But you need to learn how to control your thoughts, your minds. Consumption of alcohol, TV, Netflix, credit card, sports, you name it. Stewardship of time. What are the areas that you need to build walls? Because you are resembling a city without walls. And whatever area the Holy Spirit is telling you right now, maybe you're thinking about something. And hopefully that's the area where the Holy Spirit wants you to work on. So many Christians love the, the unbiblical motto of 
Let go and let God. The Keswick idea of we should not be working hard. No. All the graces of God, all the grace that He gives us are free, but they're free to be exercised. Even the gift of salvation, we work that salvation that is free. We work that salvation out with fear and trembling. So discipline yourself. If you are between 12 years old, 13, 14, to those in 40, 50, 60, 7, 80, 90, doesn't matter. Because younger and older men are supposed to be marked by self-control. And let us stop with the excuses. I just feel like I can never overcome. There's some men, it's embarrassing, they're just immersed in self-pity. Stop it. Stop it. It's amazing that in Mark chapter 5, we have that story of the demoniac, the man living among the dead. Remember, he looked like an animal. And the final description of him is, once Jesus came into his life, he seated, clothed, and with self-control. Same Greek word. And I'm sure that your background doesn't come close to his background, and he was marked by self-control. So that means that you should be marked by self-control. And if you say that there are some areas in your life where you cannot have self-control, then you're making the scriptures a lie. So the heart, let's finish it. The heart of self-control. What is the heart of the issue is self-control? You see, the, the problem is not just fixing the behavior. Drugs can do that partially, right? Drugs can numb you. Drugs can calm you down to certain things. But the heart issue is self-control, is treasuring Christ, loving Christ, delighting Christ more than your flesh wants to do in other things. That's the issue is self-control. Self-control is related to wisdom. Wisdom begins with fearing the Lord. So if you don't fear the Lord, it doesn't matter. You're going to fall again into the same pattern of life. Self-control does not come with a pill. They can simply take in the morning. No. Just like all virtues, you need to discipline. Paul says, just like an athlete, I beat my body, I bring my body under submission. And we need to do the same. And let me say something that's very important. And I hear that often. is the idea that once you get married, all those things are going to be good now. So I have seen men and women deeply flawed in some areas for lacking self-control. And they said, oh, if I get married, everything is going to be good. When I get married, everything is going to be good. And I, I know that the married couples here will say Amen. But the lack of self-control that you bring into your marriage will not suddenly vanish. We will actually be worse because now it's not just you. Now you have a wife and kids. They will harm even more. But I see some people, sometimes they struggle with dis despondency, always, always gloom, always joyless, joyless. They struggle with pornography, with anger, laziness, alcohol. Other areas where there's no self-mastery and they think, the solution for me to get married. As soon as I get married, oh, then self-control will be automatically. 
and how many couples we counsel dealing with some massive issues because they was not treated before marriage. And the idea was, oh, once I get married, all these lusts and all these things will vanish. No, it will not. So, brothers and sisters, I just... I don't want to discourage you. Please, do not see that as discouraging sermon. It's an exhortation from the Lord. We need to be exhorted. And here's the heart of this whole issue, as I said before. To treasure Jesus. Love Jesus. Love the Word of Christ. Let the Word of Christ control your life. Let Jesus love, like Paul says, His love is controlling my life. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. Self-discipline. Train yourself. Not looking within, but looking to Him. Not looking within to the power within you. No, you have no power. The only power within you is the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of Christ in you. Because let me tell you, you can have all the accountability sources that you can in this world. You can have all sorts of softwares. Covenant Eyes, accountable to you. Ever accountable. Lion, X3 Watch. You can attend groups that promise accountability. You can have 100 godly men with the, the, the most strict forms of accountability. But if you do not treasure the Lord Jesus, if you do not love Christ, if you are not under the submission of His Word, you will continue with a life of self-control. It might last for a few weeks, months, but you're going to fall again because it's a heart issue. So my, my cry is, behold Jesus, look to Jesus, run to Jesus, because he alone can empower you to live a self-controlled life. I love what Piper says. He said, but the Christian way of self-control is not just say no. The problem is with the word just. You don't just say no. You say no in a certain way. You say no by faith in the superior power and pleasure of Christ. It is just as ruthless and maybe just as painful. But the difference between worldly self-control and godly self-control is crucial. Who will get the glory for victory? That's the issue. Will, will we get the glory or will Christ get the glory? If we, have, if we exercise self-control by faith in Christ's superior power and pleasure, Christ will be glorified. And that's what we are going to see when we come to verses 11 and 12. The, Paul tells us the reason why he's commanding these things, the reason why he's telling the church to behave like that, is not because somehow we can do that on our own. Or that by doing that we can achieve salvation. He explains to us in verse 11 through 12. For explaining. Here's why young men must have self-control in all areas of their lives. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives. When? In the future. In this present age. In this present age. When the grace of Christ invades your life, self-control is not an option, it's an obligation. 
And I know some of you remember, remember your life before being saved. You remember your life after being saved. I remember very clearly the friends we used to hang out, the, the things we used to do before being saved. The same group of friends that used get to, used to get drunk together, do all sorts of sinful things together. And when Christ appeared, when the grace of God appeared, I remember still, right, right in the beginning, hanging out with these friends and saying no, saying no to the alcohol, saying no to those immoral things because the grace of God had appeared, training me to renounce ungodly things and live self-controlled lives. And I remember some guys upset. You taught us how to do that. Let me teach you something else. The things I used to love doing, I was hating because the grace had appeared. And that's why we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that Christ has come. The grace of God has appeared. The Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, is a reminder that we have been saved. And we have a new life under the control of the Lord. We who used to be out of control, no control over all sorts of desires and pleasures, now we have been mastered by the Master. We are slaves of the one whom we love. So, Lord, we, as we prepare ourselves to partake of the Lord's Supper, we are deeply, deeply exhorted and encouraged by your word. We are reminded that, that grace appeared, the grace embodied in the person of Christ came into our dark lives, bringing salvation. And empowering us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled lives. Lives under the control of your word, under the control of your spirit. So please, Lord, prepare us. Prepare our hearts to, to come to your table. And I pray here for those who have been exhorted that we all would take this word to heart. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, build the walls of self-discipline that we so desperately need. So may, in order for your name to be glorified, Lord, that's the, the longing of our hearts. It's not sin against you, Lord, because we love you. We want to be holy as you are holy, Lord. So we pray that You'd help us to sanctify this moment as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. Draw our hearts to Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.